0: Greetings, race community. Brent here, and I'm guessing that if you're listening to the show, you're familiar with the admissions scandal that became known as Operation Varsity Blues. But if you're not, I'm going to kick off today's show with an excerpt from NPR to help set context for our discussion. In March of 2019, federal prosecutors charged 50 people with participating in a scheme to cheat the admissions system at select colleges nationwide. The investigation into widespread cheating and corruption included Hollywood celebrities, Division I college coaches, and wealthy parents who conspired to cheat the process. At its center was a college counselor named Rick Singer, who made millions by bribing coaches at major universities to admit his clients' children as athletes for sports they often didn't play and by rigging SAT and ACT test scores. In the book Unacceptable, Privilege, deceit, and the making of the college admission scandal, journalists Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz, who covered Operation Varsity Blues for the Wall Street Journal, gave life to the largest college admission scandal ever prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. I'm thrilled to welcome Melissa Korn to today's show. Here we go. Welcome, Melissa.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so I'm guessing, and I I did a little bit of an intro uh, before this episode so that people have some context, I'm guessing most of our audience who skews towards the higher education fundraising professional um, um, background is familiar with Operation Varsity Blues. But uh, tell me a little bit of what it was like, you know, first of all, your background, uh, your own higher education journey, your path into covering higher ed at the Wall Street Journal, uh, and then what it was that stood out to you about this story where you just knew, I need to really make a run at this and do some of the most in-depth investigative journalism that that I can recall uh, being exposed to. So who are you? And tell us about your journey.
1: Sure. So I, uh, I've been at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones for 13 years, I believe it is, um, which seems like forever in some circles. Um, I've covered everything from uh, corporate quarterly earnings to uh, alcohol and tobacco, credit ratings agencies, student lenders, and for the past six years uh, about um, general higher education for our US News Bureau, US News Group. So I write about everything from admissions to university finances, to kind of campus culture issues, a little bit about college sports, especially when it's uh, connected to money, It's a lot of fun. Um, So I I, uh, envy anybody who gets to spend all of their time at or near a college campus. I got into this, I went to Cornell undergrad, and then straight from there to Columbia for journalism school, and straight from there to Dow Jones. So I had a shockingly linear path. Uh, And I, I really love what I cover right now. So yeah, it was if kind you, of- and
0: just for our audience, if you don't follow Melissa um, on Twitter, you should. I mean, if you are working in the higher ed ad- advancement space, follow her. Um, either the work that she publishes directly or that, uh, you know, that she kind of surfaces on her feed, it's going to be super relevant to all of you. But that being said, you have covered hundreds, right? Thousands of stories in your career. Mm-hmm. You've written one book. Yes. <laughs> when was it that you knew that this was different?
1: So this is not the way it normally happens, I should preface. Uh, The day the story broke, March 12th, 2019, I was in our New York office, my colleague Jennifer Levitz was in our Boston office, and we got word that there was this big thing happening, Um, but we didn't totally know all the details yet, but uh, she was told to head down to the courthouse in Boston because there was going to be a big press conference where they were going to kind of go into all the specifics about this case and the charges and this catalog of wealth that was involved, as they put it. Uh, Meanwhile, I was reading through this 204-page FBI affidavit to just figure out the details of who was charged and why and kind of what this scheme was all about. That day, I heard from multiple literary agents, heard from a few more the next day, uh, and that's when I realized, oh, I guess maybe someone thinks this should be a book. <laughs> so I, I mean, we were so in the moment of this huge breaking story. You know, it was one of those things where you don't get up from your desk for 10 hours and then you realized you forgot to eat all day, but adrenaline kept you going. And it was like that for a few days. Finally, we took a breath and said, OK, there's some people who think this should be a book and that we should be the ones to write it. What do we think? And Jennifer and I hadn't really worked together much before this. Uh, and by much, I mean at all. So we knew each other, but not whether our work styles would uh, Mm -hmm. click or anything like that. And we just jumped in and went for it.
0: Well, let me tell you a little bit about March 12, 2019 from my vantage point, because Evertrue's offices are on Congress Street in the seaport, less than half a mile from the courthouse. And so as all of this was (laughs) unfolding and given our work in the higher education sector and given the kind of indirect to direct linkages to the fundraising sector it was just fascinating to literally have the news cameras the celebrities i mean i remember every time lori Laughlin or felicity huffman was going to be in town it was like people would be running over on their lunch break just to like catch a peek right we don't get a lot of uh, paparazzi moments in boston so it was uh, it was it was really really fascinating i'll now say my family and i have been on this rv road schooling adventure over the last uh, several months And last week we were in Newport beach right now. I'm just North of La Jolla. So I feel like between my time in uh, Boston and this uh, uh, California um, tour that we've been on, I, and I've been reading your book during the process. I feel like I've been traveling through the set of a, uh, of a movie that needs to be made. So we can talk more about that, but uh, it's just been really fascinating kind of being on the periphery um, physically of a lot of what, happened uh, in this story.
1: Yeah, I, uh, and there is a mini series in the works. So hopefully you'll Love be able it. to see it. Uh, no, it's it's such a crazy story. And when you spend time in those pockets of California, I imagine you, you see, you feel there's just something in the air about this focus on particular name brand schools and this kind of status symbol of a, a, a very selective college or university. And it's at the coffee shops, it's in the high schools, it's at dinner tables. And I grew up on Long Island uh, going to a private school and it was there too. So I was able to bring to the book some of my own experience, um, kind of going through that and knowing what that pressure and that focus and that fixation can really be. And just how, obviously, how far some people were willing to go to get those bumper stickers.
0: It's funny you mentioned that because I was just catching up with a friend literally this morning who just moved from the Bay Area down to to, uh, Orange County and I told him that I was going to be speaking with you and um, he had, he was a tennis recruit in high school and he met Gordy Ernst. And so just this morning we were talking about just how pervasive some of the characters in the story were among kind of our contemporaries, right? If you were graduating from high school in the nineties, in the early two thousands, especially in, you know, an elite high school context, there was some version of this happening whether it was these players or not, a lot of the same influences were present.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, this scandal was so fascinating because it was so complex. There were so many moving parts and so many people involved in it. But at the end of the day, it's something that was kind of an extreme version of what may have already been happening uh, at some schools or among some athletic recruiters, among some coaches, among some college counselors. It just kind of put all of that together on hyperdrive.
0: Did you feel more like an author or a psychologist as you wrote this? Because you really, I mean, I, and I would just encourage anybody listening, like you probably heard about the scandal, right? You probably saw some of the headlines or the courthouse activity on the nightly news. You heard about some of the outcomes. But once you really dig into the human element here and like who these people are, from uh, Rick Singer himself, who is is almost a caricature of uh, so many just components he's part coach part obsessive compulsive you know part crook even though he's such a criminal you kind of like him or at least I did throughout the story I'm like why do I keep liking this guy and you can see why people would just want to be around him in spite of such shady behavior
1: yeah everyone likes a winner right and he just had this aura of success and I can get I can get that done for you and that was appealing to a lot of these families I think a little bit of both, you know, reporter, writer and armchair shrink. Uh, And it depended who I was talking to, you know, certain interviews, you know, we interviewed a number of the primary players in the case. And for some of those, it really was often just sitting there and listening and handing a tissue occasionally, uh, or, you know, expressing sympathy, perhaps that they had been kicked out of their country club or were still being forced to sleep on their couch by their spouse. Uh, while also saying, okay, you're kind of covering up that part. You're kind of trying to whitewash that element of what you were accused of doing. So let's really dig into that. And, you know, what is your explanation for why there's this chain of emails that was released in court documents? You're saying it was all innocent, but you know, here's what it says. So it had to be a little bit of both. And the people involved in this case were among some of the hardest to get at of any story I've ever covered. You know, oftentimes you can call or email or text or find contact info. And we did all of that. We also reached out to the lawyers for everybody, Um, but many of them had crisis communications teams. So they had PR people kind of standing between us and them. And you could always at least go knock on someone's door, right? So Jennifer and I both traveled around the country a lot, different parts of California and elsewhere, but you couldn't knock on these people's doors because they lived behind gates you know, down long driveways and they're, they're just so insulated. So, you know, there Did were- you
0: ever have to like scale a gate by cover of darkness? I mean, did we get to yeah. that level? Did you think about it?
1: Uh, I believe Jennifer like tailed someone into a community once, okay. uh, nothing too shady. And we definitely left notes on people's doors or a tape to their gate or in someone's mailbox, just because we wanted to make every effort possible to talk to them. Because as you said, the human element is a big part of this. And what came out in court documents, what came out in hearings and all that, that tells one part of the story, but we know that nobody is just kind of their worst day or their worst act. There's more to their motivation. Yeah. And we really wanted to get at that. It's not about excusing their behavior, or sympathizing with them, but explaining explaining it in context. You know, I don't think yeah. we uh, kind of let anyone off easy in the book but we do make them into full people, full humans. right?
0: And I think, look, I I took a leadership and corporate accountability class in business school and the constant um, theme was just good people do bad things, which is why controls are necessary, right? You need to have the guardrails up. And when there aren't guardrails, people will do the wrong thing, even if they're mostly good people. And I think that's really what struck out or struck me in this whole narrative is that the the guardrails were just not there. There were no guardrails whatsoever. And so on one hand, you've got parents who are, you know, there's a couple of uh, quotes that I had written down. The achievement of your children is a reflection of you as as a parent. Alison Graham said that like people get that. And so when you look at, um, your, your kids access as a signal of your self worth or, um, success, um, people want to understand the spectrum of possibilities. And there are a lot of people who, if they never knew about the side door as Rick Singer um, framed it, they never would have gone through the side door, but with it being open, it's a little bit like, you know, there's candy in the candy jar. I didn't really want to eat it, but I did. I mean, it's just that same element of, of, you know, taking um, risks and making bad decisions. And so I, I'd, I'd be curious just to get your take on um You know, even the fact that Rick Singer himself, he helped a lot of people legitimately, right? I mean, there were a lot of good work. He changed lives probably most of the time in an above board manner, but obviously not all the time. And so there really is more to the story here.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of families we spoke with for for the book or for other coverage in the journal about you know, a lot of these families were really grateful for the work that Singer did with them, you know, turn, uh, exposed them to a school. Maybe they hadn't even been thinking of the kid ended up there and absolutely thrived. You know, he helped a lot of kids along the way completely legitimately when you mentioned the guardrails. I think that was one of the things that struck me most about reporting this out was how few checks there are and how little oversight there is in I knew that there wasn't that much oversight of admissions, that admissions officers don't fact-check applications. But to see how little oversight there was of athletic recruiting as it relates to admissions um, for the kind of non-revenue sports. So yes, everyone pays attention to football and basketball, and there's you know blogs devoted to who's getting in where. But women's soccer and tennis, like nobody really looked at that. Nobody ever asked, is this kid actually going to play at the school? And then the other part of it that was so shocking was how little, how few questions were asked about where money came from, if when it was coming through athletics. And even now, uh, I've been surprised to s- that, that the response has been fairly limited in terms of schools, tightening their controls or making very clear. If you're, you know, in the process of applying to the school, or you may be getting recruited, your family can't just donate a hundred thousand dollars and get you in like that that pay to play element hasn't been just completely uh, sidelined.
0: Look, this is, I mean, I was a recruited athlete to Brown university. I played football there and there was always such a focus on compliance. We weren't even allowed to talk to people without the certain, um, you know, settings and, and they were just really focused on it when I was in school. And so it was eye-opening to see that beyond the non-revenue sports, it was pretty much a free for all that you could tag somebody as an athlete, there was no auditing. There was no, and even the fact that, you know, in the book you cited that the average admissions officer at some of these institutions has eight minutes mm-hmm. to review 18 years of somebody's life and make a, make a judgment call. Yeah. Um, and, and it doesn't seem like most of that's been solved just yet.
1: No, there's still so much trust baked into the entire process. And I think on the, the controls side of things, I mean, it's, it's a tricky balance and, obviously your listeners know this better than I do. They live it intimately, but you don't want to turn off the spigot of donations and you don't want to prevent somebody who really is interested in helping uh, develop a university. Uh, You don't want to say no thanks to the money, but you also do need to set boundaries and make very clear what that money does or doesn't get them, whether it's this year, three years from now and their kids, a senior in high school, 20 years from now you know when the next generation is coming through um and that needs to be more clearly spelled out and i think the opacity around all of that really benefits someone like rick singer benefited the families who worked with him uh but it's kind of time to move past that like right
0: just and, some transparency. and i think that's that's what you call the gray area throughout the book um and I just have to ask you about one quote because it was probably the most one of the most confusing, but also personal passages for me throughout the book. You, you had a quote from Ruth Simmons, who was my president at Brown University, and just an incredibly respected uh, leader, uh, having broken barriers. I mean, she's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And she and she, the quote you wrote was, "You'd never ever admit a student because their family promises a contribution, but it's certainly possible that there are students who come along." whose families can do incredible things for an institution if they're highly able, Simmons said, I don't believe it's problematic to admit those students. So didn't she just say, you'd never do that, but it's not problematic to do that. Like, I was just so confused by that. What did right. she mean?
1: So, and she said that uh, in, uh, in the federal courthouse in Boston, actually, uh, during the Harvard uh, affirmative action trial in fall 2018. So I think, you know, what I'm obviously not inside her head, but what she was saying was, no, we're not going to admit somebody just because their family promises some money. But if they are qualified and their family promises some money, you can't ignore that. And if they are qualified, you know, you have to think about how they are contributing to the institution, intellectually, financially, or otherwise. And I've had a number of college presidents tell me that over the years that, you know, you think about what this students and their family's contribution is. And you define that contribution a lot of different ways. And they generally swear up and down that, no, we're not gonna take someone just because of money. If they are wholly unqualified, we're not gonna admit them. But if they're like on the border and their family has connections or money or there's something else that really makes them appealing and attractive, they do get an extra look.
0: Yeah. There's a fundraising leader uh, who has since retired, but she was somebody that I looked up to early in my entrepreneurial journey at Evertrue. And she was in a conference presentation that I attended at one point. And it was the most explicit I've ever heard anybody talk about this. And she just said, look, if you're willing to donate a million dollars to my institution for a marginal student who's on the cusp, I will take that trade-off every single day because the amount of good and the impact that I can make with that million to create access and opportunities for kids who otherwise never would get it is a no-brainer. And I was like, whoa, that sounds like a quid pro quo. Like maybe it's just okay. And I that's where it's like, I actually really appreciated her candor because I just feel like that's the truth. Right. But there's so much kind of positioning and, and and double talk and and just, if that's the truth, maybe we just need to acknowledge that. Right. Um, and, but and I don't explain, know you encountered, yeah.
1: And I think that person got a, a really important point of this that what is the money going for if somebody is their family is making this donation and it's going for scholarships for other students is it really worth rejecting that wealthy student whose money could help you know seven other students get through school I, it's a tough it's a tough call it's a complicated call and it's not just so simple as to say well just don't take the money right because schools right. need the money for a range of reasons um, it's generally, you know, with with few exceptions, as we saw in this case, it's generally not just to line the pockets of
0: individuals at the school, it's to support the school. Right. Can we talk a little bit about the role of the coaches here? And I I was thinking as I was reading this, I was thinking about some of the assistant coaches who I played for. Mm -hmm. And thinking about, I mean, I remember one of them would like sleep in his car because he made so little money that he was just scraping by. Meanwhile, surrounded by. Just immense wealth and privilege. And, you you know, I, I felt, again, not wanting to justify it at all, but you can see that for some of those coaches who were really in high cost areas, surrounded by so much wealth, just scraping to get by, um, why Singer sort of made them an offer they couldn't refuse.
1: Absolutely, he really was able to hone in on that kind of weak spot, that that fault line in the system. That these coaches are making very little money. Many of them, assistant coaches and even some head coaches, in very wealthy areas. The students that they're coaching, the players they're coaching, are often quite wealthy. Um, I mean, wealthy the
0: the, the houses, sports. Yeah, Sorry. the houses they're visiting on recruiting trips yes. when they're out canvassing the country. I mean, what what is that like? Right. It's
1: just this. It there's just something very it's, it's obvious, it's easy to see someone looking at that and saying, you know what, this really isn't fair. Like I do deserve more and they're doing the coaching out of love of the sport. But if someone comes along and says you do deserve more, and I will help you get that all you have to do is this, you can understand why why they thought that was appealing. And then there was the element of coaches being under pressure to raise funds for their own institutions. And I think that's something that a lot of people were unaware of before this story came out that many coaches of those non revenue sports are expected to you know, find the funds for those new boats and new uniforms and cross-country travel and stuff. Like, yes, the school supports them, but these are expensive programs to run. So you've got somebody who's making fairly little money under pressure to have a winning team and also to be raising money to improve their team. Uh, and as one, uh, the Stanford sailing coach put it uh, in an interview, he said, "You know, if somebody's coming and saying, I can provide you with a recruit and money for your program seemed like a no-brainer.
0: Interesting. So how has this experienced, if at all, changed your perspective as an alumnus, as an alumna of Cornell University, of Columbia University, right? Some of the institutions that are in that truly elite um, sphere. Uh, and also, I know that you've done some presentations to the Cornell Club of Boston, to the Cornell Club of Los Angeles, even like What's the difference in the vibe in the Boston Zoom conversation versus the LA Zoom conversation now, you know, over a year and a half kind of since this broke?
1: So it was interesting because the LA conversation, there were a couple of people there who kind of knew or knew of some of the players in the case just because of where they lived, where they went to school, where their kids went to school. So that was certainly interesting. Um, I was doing a session for... um, this group called Accept, which is um, all about uh, eliminating barriers and kind of uh, improving equity in college access and admissions. And its members are college counselors and admissions officers at a bunch of schools. And in in the audience of that presentation were some of the people mentioned in the book. Uh, So I knew that while I was speaking, which was slightly terrifying, but also really interesting because we say in the book, some of those people were kind of the closest we got to heroes in this case, and here they were trying to continue to understand the story. Um, So I
0: gave them a lot of credit for showing
1: up for that, Uh, but it was definitely a little bit awkward for me.
0: It is really remarkable, and maybe you can set some context for our listeners, just how long this went on in pretty much plain sight. I mean, these are tight-knit communities. Thousands of people had to know what was going on? Just given how much of a dinner table or social club discussion where your kid's going to college is, and just the way that Singer ref- relied on referrals through these elite communities, like how did it go this long?
1: Yeah, so it's traced back at least to 2008, likely earlier. Uh, but the first reference, the kind of first uh, instance in which Singer used what he referred to as the side door. Um, pitching somebody as an athlete when they weren't an athlete, uh, a tennis player, was in 2008. Uh, but there were signs that he was having his uh, his clients exaggerate, kind of really push the boundaries back in the late 90s, encouraging them to check off that they were Hispanic or African-American when they weren't, things like that. So he was kind of uh, towing the line or more than towing the line for a long time. But yeah, so the the kind of pay to play element of this, the fraud part or the um, bribery part, was going on for well over for about at least a decade, I should say, um, before it all came tumbling down. And what brought it down wasn't the scheme itself, right? And as you're saying, like so many people must have known about this. Uh, there were so many coaches involved, so many parents, the word of mouth element. You had parents trying to make sure that they were being treated better than some other client. They wanted to find out, well, is this other dad doing it too? Because I feel guilty. The kids, some of them knew and some of them were talking about the tests that they took with someone's help. And none of that actually brought it down, which is just astonishing in part because, you know, for example, at USC, the person who was... Uh, assigned to look into some questionable athletic recruits was one of the people who was charged in the case. She has pleaded, not guilty, um, but she's alleged to have been working with Singer and getting paid by Singer to pitch some of these people as recruits.
0: It makes you wonder, did Singer think he was going to get away with it? I mean, did like the paper trail and and just the, like once you started unraveling it, I mean, it must've just been everywhere you turned, maybe not everybody on the record, but this was like the worst kept secret, in the country yet it I don't know did he think it was it was going to be fine
1: I mean I I can't get inside his head but I can certainly say that he made sure that the people he was working with understood the stakes you know that that what the that it was not in their best interest to uh blab about it to everyone else uh, that you got to keep this close to the vest. He was very careful about telling certain groups of people the information they needed, but not more than that. And that story, that information he was telling one group was different than the information he was giving to another group. And all combined, it created this scheme, but not everybody knew every other player. Um, and that was one of the legal arguments was, you know, is this really a conspiracy when this parent who was working through Singer says they don't even know who the you know athletic administrator or the coach was. They were just working with Singer. So he, he did a good job compartmentalizing.
0: So are there 10 other admissions? I was thinking like cartels, you know, branches of the mafia, like are they all out there? I mean, are we going to be playing whack-a-mole for the next five or 10 years? Are there five other investigations we don't know about right now, or was this truly the one?
1: Um, I don't know if there are others that are quite this extensive, quite this complex and quite this high level in terms of the uh, prominence of the families involved. But I think anybody in higher ed would be naive to say that, okay, we've cleaned it all up. There's no cheating anymore. There's no lying. There's no fraud. We're all good now. I think that's just an incredibly naive assumption. You know, there have been other cases of fraud in testing with test cheating rings, people pretending to be other people to take the exams. Uh, there, just this week, there was a case, um, the Coast Guard Academy, um, an administrator there was charged with fixing test scores for people. I mean, stuff, this stuff still happens. And there is still so much of that gray area in fundraising, in donations, uh, that People potentially misunderstand what that million dollar donation will get them, or very perfectly understand, and that's why they give it.
0: So what else stood out to you as you dove into the, the backdoor, as Singer calls it? The fact that with the right amount of philanthropic contribution and you know the not necessarily a quid pro quo, but with it, you know, per Ruth Simmons' comments, you need to take the full context into consideration. Were there any things that stood out to you about the business of higher ed fundraising that made you uh, really uncomfortable or that made you maybe actually empathetic with the, the, the sort of business of higher ed fundraiser? Because you know, we have interviewed so many people on this ep- on this podcast, Melissa, and they're coming to work every day trying to create access, trying to create opportunity, trying to help with facilities, doing good, good work. But it doesn't mean that there's not valid critiques of the system.
1: Right. So I already mentioned the kind of need for more transparency. I will say uh, the president of Northwestern, when I spoke to him, he's uh, quoted in the book and he, he was, he's very blunt. He's just straight talker. And I always appreciate that about him. But one of the things he said was he, he reads hundreds of applicant files a year. And some of it is there, you know, people that uh, are you know, little siblings of people he's taught or some f- just from the local Chicago area. And he also reads the applications of the kids of faculty and major donors. And the way he put it was, if I'm turning down this kid and I'm going to a cocktail party, and I'm gonna see mom or dad, I need to know why we turned down the kid. Because yeah, when you have a major donor, that's gonna become a very awkward conversation. And I, I understand that, I appreciate that. Um, how far somebody will go to kind of put somebody who's not even a marginal candidate, but just an unqualified candidate into the accepted pile because of a donation, Uh, that's problematic. Uh, I think, again, there need to be probably more stringent rules and expectations about all of that. And that's discussions within development and admissions offices. Um, You know, what, what are the communications between those two offices like? At what point does somebody in development weigh into the admissions office? Oh, that uh, applicant is the granddaughter of this person. You know, at what level do those conversations have and I th- happen? And I think those all could stand to be reviewed right now. Um, I do still have. You started by noting that I tend to be kind of cynical, and I absolutely am, but I do hold out hope that at its core this, most of this is being done for the right reasons. And I had an instance when I was in high school, um, someone from my school uh, had applied to an IV where his family's name was all over campus, like generations of his family had gone there and he didn't get in. And the family threatened, you know, okay, we're gonna not give you any more money. And the school's response was essentially, he's just not qualified. Like, we appreciate your tens of millions of dollars, but we cannot admit this student. And that gave me some hope that, you know, they do have the right priorities. Uh, yes, there are some people who maybe do get in when they were marginal candidates because of the money or because of a connection. But uh, deep down, you know, what good does it do for a student to go to a school that they're not qualified to go to? Fair
0: enough. I-
1: I will say that covering this story, the Varsity Blues case, and covering um, some of the litigation over affirmative action at Harvard and elsewhere gave me really a clearer understanding of when people talk about who gets an edge in admissions, you know, there's the the people who oppose race-conscious admissions say, you know, we shouldn't be giving preference or special treatment to students of color or first-generation students or kind of the um, perhaps those subsets of the student population. Uh, But in reality, they're not the ones getting special treatment. They're not the ones getting an edge. It's the legacies. It's the kids of donors. It's the athletes who have every advantage. And that's one of the amazing things about this case, right? Is that they, these families had every advantage. These kids would have been fine. Absolutely. Right.
0: I mean, some of them would have been, multi-generational multi-multi-millionaires no matter what which is just part of what what makes it hard to, to understand but some um, of them have legacies but, at these
1: schools already right
0: right some of them didn't yeah, even so, want to go to college just just to share some of the stats if i recall on on the harvard case that was uh, reviewed in in, in court it, it was um or it was a duke economist that had done the research but it was 6% of people get into harvard Mm -hmm. 34% of legacies get into Harvard. 86% of recruited student athletes get into Harvard.
1: And that was from, you know, uh, about a six year period that ended a couple of years ago. So that's not, you know, the most recent year, but yeah, it's, you know, if you, and which is why Rick Singer's plan was in some ways so diabolical and so genius, right? He understood that if you're a recruited athlete, you are in. Uh, And if you're, not actually a player, but you could provide funding to a coach or a program, which is appealing to the coach, uh, and they're willing to flag you as a recruit. That's just as good as actually being a star player.
0: For sure, yeah. Look, I remember uh, getting to Brown and uh, first generation. I, I had no idea what I was getting into, but but uh, there were so many kids who quit the first week. I was like, Are you kidding me? You just like like did you just lie about wanting to play? like How do you just Like for me, that was so surreal, like how you could possibly quit as a recruited athlete, knowing that that was such an influence in admissions. And it, you know, my assumption now with more context is like, that was just their plan, right? Like they never intended Mm -hmm. to be on the team. And that was for probably the sport with the most compliance, um, you know, relative to some of these other situations. Can I ask? So I read this, I read this and I just kept feeling like I was flipping from lens to lens to lens. On one hand, I read it as a recruited athlete from an Ivy league institution. And it made me just think through so many of the people and the processes and just replay my own experience. I I thought about it as an entrepreneur in this fundraising sector where, you know, we really talk about the mission and the impact, but it was such a nuanced view of the dark side of that business. And I also read it as a parent, I've got three young kids and I know that you're a a parent as well. Mm -hmm. And how, how has it shaped your view on parenting. Um, because for me, I mean, it was just, I, I just was, it, it, I don't know, it was just one of those things where when you read all of this, I mean, my kids are small enough that I don't feel this pressure, but but it just seems like so challenging. Um, and, and I'm curious what your takeaways were on that front.
1: Yeah, that was one of the hardest parts of digging into this story was finding myself relating to some aspects of what some of these parents thought. Um, and I'm not necessarily proud of that, but the, their insecurities as mothers and fathers, their wish to make things easy for their kids, right? You want to help your kid succeed to what lengths you should go. At what point is it no longer helping, but hurting. I think those are things that a lot of parents often consider. Um, and I definitely, you know, my, my daughter's five, so I've got some time before we're in the, the throes of the college admissions process, but, uh, you know I, I I'm well aware of the lengths to which people go to get into private schools here in New York City uh, right the kindergarten and the pre-k admission scene is just as intense as the college admission scene for some people so that was that was tough to notice but if anything it was kind of a good cautionary tale not that I ever intended to go that far as any of these parents did uh, to to kind of ease the path for my daughter but a reminder that what you think is helping your kid isn't necessarily helping them. Uh, and here's just how devastating an impact that can have, right? Because you, we go into the book a little bit about what happened to some of these families afterwards. And there's a lot of family counseling. There's a lot of silent treatments, right? There's one family that uh, the daughter kind of goes in waves of talking to and ignoring the dad, because whenever there's a new news story out, she gets angry again. Um, a lot of door slams, a lot of I'm sorry's and, those relationships are pretty fractured and will be for a really long time when you have a kid who gets goes to his mom or dad and said, why didn't you believe in me? And that's just gut-wrenching.
0: So tell me, if you, had, if you could have dinner with one of the uh, characters, if you will, in the, in the book, uh, who would it be and why? Uh,
1: that's to suggest that I haven't had dinner with some of them. Uh, let's Ag- see. <laughs> again,
0: again, again, yeah.
1: Um, hmm, that's a good question. I think I have to say the prosecutors in the case fascinate me. Uh, just the, the job they took on and how they approached this case and how they kind of built it up. Uh, certainly, you know, picking their brains on more of that would be wonderful. Um, probably the parents who didn't plead guilty right away, but who pleaded guilty, uh, like six, eight months later, I just learning more from them about why they, what their evolution of thought was. And then of course there are other parents and some coaches and others who have pleaded not guilty and are going to head to trial sometime in 2021. Uh, you know, they all came at this from such different points. They all had such different motivations. There's overlap for sure, um, but just, understanding you know we got that from a number of parents why did you do this but there are plenty of others that still a question mark
0: I was a few chapters in maybe not even that far in and I just was thinking to myself this has to become a movie this has to become a movie like it's too good to not become a movie it's literally movie stars in you know (laughs) the pages and uh and so you you said that there is a mini series in the work just tell me a little bit about that and um kind of what you're excited about as this story continues to unfold and, and be socialized.
1: Yeah. So the book was optioned by Anna Perna, a production company uh, that does movies and TV uh, and video games. So they actually optioned the book before we had finalized the book contract, uh, which was kind of wild. Uh, but when we sent out the book proposal, it landed on their desks as well. So it is being written by a screenwriter who. Uh, won an Emmy for his work on American crime story, the OJ Simpson series. Uh, He is, he lives in LA. He kind of is peripheral to this universe. So it's really fun to talk to him about all of it. Um, There, it was, you know, it was pitched around and uh, it's, they're they're figuring out exactly kind of a few more details of it, but we are uh, expecting it to actually become a show and be aired. So we're excited
0: for it. I can't wait. Congratulations. And it just makes so much sense. And, and I hope that it uh, continues to, uh, to, to to be successful. And um, I, I guess I would say, just let's take a few minutes. Um, and I encourage everybody, if you're in the higher ed sector, you've got to read this book. It's just, it's too good. Um, it's too illuminating on so many uh, of, of the realities that we all navigate on a daily basis. Um, but it's not all you do. You, you are writing a lot about other things as well. Mm-hmm. So when you think about where we are, you know, in November of 2020, all the disruption that higher ed has experienced this year, just what else are you thinking about? What are you uh, excited about to cover? What are you concerned about for the sector? What is on the top of mind of the college administrators that you're speaking with?
1: I mean, you know, the the kind of curse of may you live in interesting times. I feel like higher ed has been living in particularly interesting times for the past two years. Uh, first with the kind of this admissions case just rocking everything we knew about selective admissions and then the pandemic just upending so much else. So I think, uh, you know, I for the last few months I've been writing a lot about uh, the impact of the pandemic on universities, on their finances on how they teach, on whom they teach, on who can afford college uh, and who's even considering college as an option anymore as kind of their universes are turned upside down. Uh, one thing I'm keeping an eye on is how schools think about financial aid and you know, can they remain need blind, those few that are, uh, when their own budgets are just being crunched right now because of the loss of international students increased costs loss of revenue from room and board from last spring and for some for this whole school year as well right this is this is a moment of reckoning for so many schools uh so there is uh there's no shortage of stories to be writing at this moment it's kind of exhausting and astonishing and i am so happy i'm kind of along for the ride of it
0: well, it's, a, you call it a moment of reckoning. I think from my vantage point, it has also been a moment of innovation and I'm probably way less cynical than you are, which is why it's great to just, you know, get your perspective because I'm just like way too, <laughs> no, I know. I'm like way too passionate about all the good that higher ed can do. And so it's good to just, you know, have the more objective view, but I guess on the positive side, when you see opportunity, for the sector coming out of this you know this has just been a catalyst for change we know higher ed can move slow and decision making and we've just seen what can happen with an external um you know force that nobody could have imagined just accelerating change and i have no doubt that whatever higher education is 10 years or 20 years from now we'll be able to trace it back to 2020 and this will be the moment that i think shapes the future good bad or otherwise
1: Right, it wasn't the scandal that did away with standardized tests as kind of the the standard. Um, it was the pandemic that did away with SAT and ACT expected to be part of an application. And the schools that have removed it for a one or three year trial period, I don't see the genie going back in the bottle. Uh, you know, I think a lot of schools are getting more creative in how they teach. They're they're improving their online courses. They're realizing that hybrid is a possibility going forward, right? That that's not just gonna be for this semester and never again, that lower density residential population could work longer term for certain programs. And yeah, it is, it's an exciting moment. I think it's also a terrifying moment for a lot of institution leaders, but there is also this palpable sense of excitement of here's our moment to really switch things around and do the stuff that we were a little afraid to do before.
0: And when you think about it through the alumni and development lens, and and maybe even making a little bit personal with with your own journey, like when you think about what Cornell has done for you since you graduated, Mm -hmm. and I don't know anything about your relationship with Cornell, versus what role you feel like Cornell could play in more of a lifelong journey, what's your personal experience? I mean, is it great? Is it okay? Is it terrible? I mean, just where on the spectrum would you kind of, Um, frame it. And do you have any ideas for how colleges might be more relevant and more value added in the alumni journey such that it makes it easier to make those donations more consistently or maybe at stretch levels relative to other philanthropic interests that we're all evaluating?
1: Yeah, I think especially right now, prioritizing your philanthropic activity is complicated, right? You've got appeals for food banks when you know that there is basic food insecurity in your own neighborhood and then you've got an appeal from an institution that you know has a multi hundred million or billion dollar endowment and I think there's still just so much confusion about well that's a really rich school why do they need money, so um, The the money that I've given to various alma maters tends to be earmarked for scholarships, financial aid types of things, um, occasionally for study abroad opportunities for students, because that was a really meaningful part of my Cornell experience. Um, I also give to the student newspaper because I wouldn't be where I am without working for the Cornell Daily Sun. Uh, So, you know, there's a bit of a kind of split... um, Split loyalty there between the school and the newspaper because they are two different things. Uh, but I think driving home to people why this money matters now, and it's not just for you know adding to the pool of gold coins for um, for people to go dive into and enjoy, but rather because- which is
0: which is what fundraising professionals do constantly. They just Absolutely. have huge pools of money that they jump into on Fridays after work. No, I mean, look, I think. What you're, what you're touching on is so spot on and it is such an area of tension and not to get too into details, but one of the challenges that our, our partners constantly face in this sector is they need unrestricted money, right? They need donations that can go to anything, right? That can go to the general operating expenses. That is the pool of coins that help keep the lights on, not as inspiring as there are hungry students. We want them fed, right? There are students who need access or they'll never be able to study abroad. I want to help a kid buy that plane ticket to be able to go uh, to the UK, to be able to go and experience some of the things you experienced. And I think that's this constant tension around unrestricted versus restricted giving. The more restricted we can make it, the odds improve that you and I are going to be inspired to stretch further because the human impact is more, it's just clearer. Um, but that's just one big area of tension. I don't know if you saw that in your work at all.
1: Absolutely. And I wrote a story a few years ago and it was perhaps the least sexy subject possible, but I found it, it stuck with me as one of the most fascinating stories about um, deferred maintenance and the challenges that schools have in tackling that and how the, the list of projects just keeps growing. And, you know, it's really hard to raise money for a new roof um, or an upgraded HVAC system, although during the pandemic, actually, those HVAC systems were upgraded quite quickly. But, uh, you know, those are really hard to raise money for. But when you can say, you know, we have to shut down this lab, this research lab, because there's constant leaks in the building, or it's unhealthy air, and our students might get sick, then you can sell it a little bit more. I, I don't have a solution for how you can um, fundraise for staplers and new desk, you know, new office chairs. Um, that's always going to be a tough one, but yeah, as, as kind of concrete as you can make the, the end sort the end, uh, that's the destination for the money, you know, exactly what is this going to? Oh, it's for our endowment. Okay. Here, the general fund, here's what the general fund supports. I don't think people even know the answer to that most of the time when they're
0: considering giving. For sure. And I think that's, an area of of real excitement and innovation in the sector right now, just the opportunity to connect the student story to alumni, to, to leverage video, whether it's quick snippets of video or Zoom interactions like this that have allowed you as an author to connect with people who otherwise you would have probably been flying around the country, you know, doing book tours, et cetera. And I'm sure you wish you could be doing that to a certain regard, but I bet that there's been, you know, a lot of efficiencies brought into even the fact that we're able to have a conversation like this. I'm not sure I would have thought to suggest it um, two years ago, um, but it's just so natural uh, in this kind of COVID environment.
1: Yeah, I will say I respond so much more when I get one of those phone calls from an actual student uh, saying, you know, hey, I'm a sophomore or hey, I'm doing the journalism master's program. And let me tell you a little about my story and how past donations helped me get to where I am right it's really hard to hang up on them you know it's really hard to ignore that email
0: or that video the problem is a lot of people are and i think that that's where the kind of role of the student as you know philanthropic kind of ambassador officer if you will it's evolving right and we just need to figure out how do we go beyond a phone call at night when you might be putting your daughter to bed into something that's a little bit more holistic in nature where you can build maybe even in some cases, an ongoing relationship with those students. And so that's uh, a big area of focus um, right now. So uh, I really just can't thank you enough for, for taking the time. We'll make sure to link to the book. And I'm just going to put this out there uh, to our listeners, the first 10 people who shoot me an email, uh, who'd like a copy of the book, it's on me. So just shoot me an email, Brent at Evertrue.com. Um, and, uh, and we'll make sure to get that uh, uh, to you on your digital platform or physical platform um, of choice. So uh, Melissa, any concluding thoughts uh, as, we, uh, as we wrap up today uh, for folks working in the fundraising space uh, that are interested in learning more about you or this work?
1: Uh, so you can follow me on social media. I'm on um, at Melissa Corn on Twitter where you'll hear a lot of stuff about higher ed and snarky comments about parenting. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm always open to story ideas. Uh, I'm always interested in hearing what's happening on the ground at institutions. And the best way for me to learn about that since I can't travel to every school is to have people like you reach out to me.
0: All right, so if any of you have the dark side, the edgy cases of fundraising that you'd anonymously like to share with Melissa, (laughs) this is the ever true tip line right here. So, uh, uh, (laughs) um, well, best wishes, Melissa. Thank you um, for your time. Best wishes with the miniseries in particular. I'm so excited to see it. And uh, everybody make sure to check out Unacceptable. So with that, Brent, signing off on today's episode of The Rays Podcast. Take care.